Amen. Well, go ahead and take a seat and then take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Thank you, Luke, and the rest of the music team for leading us in worship through song this morning. What a joy, what a blessing to sing together. Well, I don't know if you had the experience of talking to a child, and that child keeps asking you questions that you just wonder, why are you asking that? And why do you keep asking why? Why is it everything is why? I had an experience with my son. I will let you determine which one you think it is. Um, we were driving in the car, and he asked me, uh, Dad, how long is a mile? So I thought, that's a great question. This is kind of a scholastic question. I can respond. We can talk about it. Uh, feet, yards, all those different things. This is a great question. I said 5,280 feet. And he said, oh, yeah, I know that. I mean in trash cans. And I said, in trash cans? What do you mean? <laughs> What do you even mean? What does it mean? How many miles, how many trash cans? And what are you talking about? I, I think when we come to the scriptures and we read certain aspects of prophecy, we can ask the same types of questions of, of thinking, how does this fit into one another? And really responding with the same response that I gave my son, which is, what does this even mean? How, what is this even attempting to say? How am I supposed to understand anything about what I'm reading or what I'm hearing or what I'm seeing? I don't know if that's how you feel about prophecy. Maybe Revelation, maybe Daniel. Maybe you feel that way about prophecy, that there's no real way to fully understand it. And if that's you this morning, and prophecy scares you to some degree, I am so glad that you're here because... I think that this morning, as we dive into these verses, I think that you will find encouragement, specifically three aspects of encouragement for all of us to understand about prophecy from prophecy. So we're going to see three forms of amazing practical encouragement from prophecy about how we're to understand prophecy. So to that end, let's read verses 15 through 28. And again, we've gone through two sermons thus far in Daniel. So this is the uh, Daniel chapter seven. This is the last sermon in Daniel chapter seven. This is the last section in Daniel chapter seven. And honestly, you could preach the, the point of this sermon. You could preach, you could get up here and you could define everything that's happening because we've already gone through it. We're gonna see Daniel say, hey, can you tell me about the dream? And the angel's gonna say, yes, here's what the dream means. We've already done that together. And so because of that, we won't have to dive deeper into those specific details. We're actually going to do that later. And we've already done that together in our series in Revelation. So what we get to do this morning is we get to pull back. We're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to pull back and just see what does this say about prophecy, not the specific aspects inside of this prophecy, because we already know that. We've already gone through it. So let's read together. We'll see what Daniel's seeing, what he's saying, and what he's hearing from the angel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions of my head kept alarming me. And I came near to one of those who were standing by and began seeking out from him the exact meaning of all of this. And so he said it to me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, 
which was different from all the others, extraordinarily fearsome with its teeth of iron, its claws of bronze, which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth speaking great boasts and was larger in appearance than its associates. And I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and was overcoming them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the season arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. We'll devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings will arise and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will make low three kings. He'll speak words against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make changes in the seasons and in law. They will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment. And his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the reign, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the matter of this revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and the splendor of my face changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts today that as we study this prophecy and study about prophecy, that we would be encouraged, practically built up and comforted, that there would be a sense of joy as we study prophecy that sometimes we can be confused about. Sometimes we can be frustrated with the details. How do we know what's going to happen? When's it going to happen? I pray that we would be able to pull back and see why this is here, what this is teaching us about prophecy this morning. God, we ask that you through your Holy Spirit would open our eyes. We pray it every Lord's day because we're completely dependent on you, Holy Spirit, opening our eyes. If you don't do that, we will be exactly what Adonis read. We will see, but not see. We will hear, but not hear. We will not perceive, even though we're staring right at it. So open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds, so that while seeing, we would actually see and encourage us this morning as we look at your law together. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. There are three practical encouragements about prophecy, from prophecy, this morning in, this, in these verses, in this section. Three practical encouragements. Encouragement number one, complex prophecies can be clearly understood. I want you to be encouraged by this because I think that Daniel can be encouraged by this as well. Complex prophecies can be clearly understood. Verse 15, Daniel begins by saying that his spirit was distressed within him. Distressed, literally in Aramaic, it is contracted within its sheath. It's a picture of a sword that the sword's been put back into the sheath. My my spirit is contracted inside of myself. I'm terrified and I'm, I'm trying to protect myself. And my question is why? Why is Daniel terrified? 
Is it the dream? Yes, I think it's an aspect of the dream. Maybe the dream itself is scary, but I think it's more what the dream represents. And the dream represents two very important things that I think Daniel wouldn't have understood up until this point. Number one, he knew that we will be in exile for 70 years and then we'll return back to Jerusalem. That's what Jeremiah had written. That's what God had promised. 70 years and then you get to go back home. And I think in Daniel's mind, he thought 70 years of difficulty and then we go back home and all is well. But this prophecy is saying, all will not be well when you go back home. Daniel would have been tempted to think that once the 70 years of exile were over, the future would be bright for the family of God. And that's why he needed this dream. Getting home would not be easy. There was a long and arduous road that lay ahead, even though deliverance is ultimately promised. The second reality that I think Daniel is understanding for the first time is the immense suffering that the saints of the ancient of days will experience. This is going to be beyond anything that he ever thought that the saints were going to have to go through. And notice, this isn't even specific about him. This isn't specified of him experiencing this. This is saints into the future. So he is distressed because of what he knows is going to happen to other brothers and sisters down the road. If, if we enter into the end times together, if we're alive when the end times begin, when uh, the, the, the revelation end times began, when Daniel's 70th week begins, when the seven-year period of tribulation and great tribulation begins, if we're alive together as we begin that journey into the end times, then Daniel is actually distressed on our behalf. He's distressed about what we are going to experience. We are going to be experiencing it together in a way that would be greater suffering than anything we could imagine. I, I just think that this is so informative for us. Do you feel this way about your brothers and sisters in the world that we just prayed for? The International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Do you feel distressed on their behalf? Because that's what Daniel is feeling. He's feeling distressed on behalf of the family of God yet to come for Daniel that is going to experience this suffering. He's distressed. His thoughts kept alarming him. And he's also confused. Verse 16, I came near to one of those who were standing by and began seeking out from him the exact meaning of this. He's confused. I love that. This should be very encouraging to you that Daniel is confused about prophecy. Prophets didn't always fully understand or comprehend the messages that were given to them. And here, Daniel, who could interpret all of the king's very weird dreams, can't interpret his own. So he asks an angel. That's the one who is standing by, one who is close in proximity to the throne, and so he asks an angel. We don't know who this angel is. Maybe it's Gabriel because he appears twice in this book. But maybe not because he's named twice in this book. So maybe because it's an un unnamed angel, it's not Gabriel. We don't know. But Daniel asks for the exact meaning. My Bible says exact meaning of all of this. I want to know a one-for-one -one detail of everything that we just saw. Exact, literally, it's the certainty or the authoritative meaning. I want to know exactly what's going on. And as he brings that request to the angel, notice this. I want to know the exact meaning of everything that just happened in my dream. What does the angel tell him? The angel says, verse 17, the great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who arise from the earth. So remember in the dream, they arise from the sea. That was uh, imagery from the chaos of humanity. And now we're told, literally, they're going to come from the earth. They're going to be people that come from the earth. But, verse 18, the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the, the kingdom forever. 
This is the kingdom that was described in Daniel 2.44. This is the kingdom that Jesus will inaugurate, that he will bring in his second coming. It will begin with the millennial kingdom and it will go on into eternity. And the saints receive this kingdom. The saints receive it. There are some who would interpret saints to be angels, uh, holy ones, to, to refer to angels, not to believers. I don't think that fits with a lot of verses in Daniel, with a lot of verses in Revelation, but I think it really doesn't fit down in verse 25. When the Antichrist is going to speak words against the Most High, wear down the saints of the Holy One, uh, the highest one, and will intend to make changes in seasons and in law. So if you see saints as angels, what you're saying is the Antichrist, when he is ruling and reigning, is going to try and change things that are on the earth. But what bearing does that have with angels in heaven? It has no bearing. It doesn't make sense to say the Antichrist is trying to change things on earth to try and mess with angels in heaven. That's not going to happen. It doesn't really fit uh, with laws having any bearing, earthly laws having any bearing on heavenly angels. In fact, drop down to verse 27. The reign, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the whole, the highest one. The people of the saints of the highest one. That trips people up. The people of the angels of the highest one. They are those that are underneath the angels who are underneath the highest one. That's how, if you want to interpret this to be angels, you can interpret it that way. But grammatically, it's actually abundantly clear what that phrase is saying. It's not the people of the saints of the highest one. It's in something called apposition, where it would literally read the people, that is the holy ones of the most high. The people, that is the saints, the people who are the saints themselves. So the angel says in verse 17 and 18, there are going to be four kingdoms, really bad. The saints will reign, will rule, and it'll all be over. And they will own it. They will possess it, verse 18. They will possess the kingdom forever. In Aramaic, that means to be in full ownership of it. So you and I will be in full ownership of the kingdom because the saints, believers, will be in the kingdom, own the kingdom, we get it. And how long do we get it for? We get it, verse 18, for all, forever, for all ages to come. Literally for an age, even for an age of ages. There's no bigger way to say infinity in Aramaic than what Daniel is receiving here. But I love this. So pull back. We've already covered that. We already know that. You could have told Daniel that, right? If Daniel had asked you, you could have said, oh, I know the answer. Because we cheated, we read ahead. I know the answer. But here's what I love about this. Daniel says to the angel, can you give me the exact meaning I want to know who the, the kingdoms are. I want to know who the beasts are. I want to know when they're coming. I want to know what's happening. I want to know what the horns are. I want to know all of it. Can you give me the exact meaning? And what does the angel say? He doesn't give exact meaning. He gives a summation of it. He says, yeah, here's the point. Kingdoms are going to come, but then Jesus' kingdom comes and the saints rule and reign. There it is. I, I think... Daniel's almost let down by that because he's going to say, wait, can I ask another one? <laughs> I, need, I need to press into this because that wasn't enough. I want to know more. But there is something so instructive for this. And this is why I say point number one, encouragement from this passage from prophecy about prophecy. Here's a, a huge encouragement. The complexities of this prophecy, though we fully don't understand, we can totally know what it means. We say that a lot at CBC, right? We say that a lot. When we come to certain verses, certain problem text, certain passages where mm, this is hard. There's three interpretive views or four interpretive views. I, I try my best to, to give you the four interpretive views, to not straw man argument any of them, but to tell you here's why they believe what they believe. Here's the issues. And at the end of the day, I don't know. Here's where I land. 
But I always say at the end of going through those interpretive views, I will say, but the good news is it doesn't change the meaning of the text. However you interpret this, the good news is it doesn't change the meaning of the text. However you interpret those four beasts, the angel would say, hey, good news, we can all disagree on our interpretation, doesn't change the meaning. Because what's the meaning? There's going to be four really bad kingdoms, and then Jesus is going to destroy them all, and he's going to rule and reign. Done. That's beautiful. This, this passage is instructive for two types of people. One, type, one group of people says, I want to know every specific detail down to the minute that it's happening. Right? What is 666? Who's the Antichrist? What's the mark of the beast? I want to know names. I want to know numbers. I want to know everything. And I think this passage says, number one, you don't need to. You can still totally get the point without knowing the specifics. Number two, pull back and see the general tone of everything. Pull back and the general tone is so obvious. Don't lose the forest for the trees, as we say, right? Don't get so specific that you lose the whole point of what's happening. Whatever may be fuzzy about this passage, and sure, there are loads of fuzzy things about this passage. This much is abundantly clear. The beastly kingdoms of this world will continue in their dominance, but one day the saints of the ancient of days will rule and reign in peace. That's what the vision means. So while we can get stuck in some of the complexities here, you definitely cannot read these verses and say that we don't know what Daniel's vision is about. And that should be an encouragement to you and to me. If you struggle with prophecy, be encouraged that complex prophecies can absolutely be clearly known, okay? So maybe you're here and you say, I want to know every single detail. Be encouraged and challenged by this passage to pull back and say, I might not know every detail, but I can get the full tone, the overarching meaning. The second encouragement is the reality that the Bible is one perfectly unified whole. The Bible, point number two, the Bible is one perfectly unified whole. And I think you'll understand why I say it that way. But right off the bat, let me just tell you about a man, you guys know him, William Tyndale, English reformer, first translator of the Bible directly from Greek and Hebrew into English. He be began a phrase, kind of coined a phrase called uh, analoga uh, scriptura, that scripture is analogous with itself. That you, you can use scripture to interpret scripture because scripture will always agree with scripture. That idea of scripture always interpreting scripture depends on the unified whole of the Bible. That one verse isn't going to say something else different and contrary to another verse. And that's absolutely what we find here. Daniel says in verse 19, I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth piece. So thanks, angel. Thanks for the overview. Maybe you misunderstood my question. Can we get a little bit more specific on this fourth beast? Can we talk about the horns? Can we talk about the eyes? Can we talk about the mouth? We need to know. It has, uh, it's different from others. It's fearsome. It has iron claws and teeth. It has iron teeth and claws of bronze. It's just, it's this disgusting, hideous beast. It has horns. It has eyes. It has a mouth. And then there's a new piece of information that's given to us in verse 21. We haven't seen this one yet. The horn will wage war with the saints and overcome the saints. It will overpower. Some of your translation might say overpower the saints. This is what's terrifying Daniel. Daniel has seen that fellow believers will be destroyed. One commentator says the saints are no match for Satan and his evil representative, the Antichrist. They're going to be destroyed. 
The Antichrist is going to make war with the saints and he will prevail. God's people will lose. And the Antichrist will win. That's what Daniel says, wait, time out. We need to know more about this guy because he's doing some devastating damage. And so he asks, who is this individual? Verse 23, the fourth beast, the angel's going to give us a detail about the fourth beast. And he's going to go into some more specifics that he didn't give us in the first part of the prophecy, part of the interpretation. And I think this is so instructive. So remember I said there's two groups of people. There's one group of people that they get so stuck on the, the small, minute details. I need to know every specific. And this text encourages us, pull back. Complex prophecies can be clearly understood. Pull back, see the whole, you can understand it. But then here, I think this section is encouraging some of us, group number two, people group number two, who maybe says, you know what? We'll never fully understand. We don't fully know. So I'm just going to get the general gist, the general tone, and that's good enough for me. No, this is an encouragement. Press deeper. Don't just sit with the, okay, that's a good summary. I'm done. No, press deeper. Try to get deeper into the prophecy. Try to get deeper into the specific details. Don't, don't just look at the summation and go, enough for me. We'll never fully know. Do what Daniel did. Okay, can I ask a second question? Can I dive deeper? There's more that I want to know. So I would just encourage you, try to figure out, you probably already know, who are you? Are you in group number one or are you in group number two? And let these verses recalibrate the way that you look at prophecy. I think that would be a great application of these verses. The angel says in verse 23, let me tell you about the fourth beast. And again, you already know this. You, you could preach this. The fourth beast is different. It's different in its scope. Verse 23, it's going to devour the whole earth instead of one little group. It's going to devour the whole earth. It's different in its power. It's going to tread down and crush the whole earth. But the biggest difference between the fourth beast and the other three beasts is the fourth beast has two periods of existence. There's Rome, and then there's this Rome 2.0. And the reason why there has to be a Rome 2.0 is because Daniel 2 tells us, and here in Daniel 7, that at the end of this beast's empire, Jesus is going to abruptly stop it by his second coming to establish an earthly kingdom and a rule and a reign here on earth. So this can't just be Rome, physical Rome 1.0, because you and I aren't living in the physical kingdom of God, in the physical kingdom that Jesus is ruling and reigning over. So therefore, we're still waiting for it. So therefore, this fourth beast has, yes, a Roman existence, but a Roman 2.0 existence. And in the day that Jesus shows up, he will be showing up to destroy this Rome 2.0. The angel says in verse 24 that the horn starts out small, grows quickly to power. It uproots these three kings that are part of the 10 kings, somehow takes power from them, devours them, violently overthrows them. So apparently, we, we can't be absolutely sure here, but it appears that when you come to the end of time, three of the 10 kings or kingdoms that arise will resist the little horn's power, and he will conquer them by force. So you've got these 10 kingdoms, you've got the little horn, which is the Antichrist, and he's going to destroy, he's going to try and take over all 10 kingdoms, and there are going to be three of those kings and kingdoms that are going to rise up and say, no, 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 we're going to fight against you, and he's going to destroy them and take over. Just side note, evil can never manufacture enough glue to keep itself together. Here's 10 evil kingdoms with one evil antichrist, and they still are fighting. They don't all say, yes, let's be evil together. They go, no, I want to be more evil than you. No, I'll be more evil than you. And they're fighting together. The 
dissension always seems to surface between evil powers. There's no lasting cohesion with evil rulers. Verse 25 says he's going to wear down the saints of the Holy One, the highest one. The word in Aramaic and its equivalent in Hebrew uh, to wear down means to wear out a piece of clothing or to wear out sandals. One commentator says to wear out the saints means to harass them continually so that life becomes a wretched experience. Injustice, seizure of property, outright physical persecution could well become some of the measures, the specific measures the Antichrist uses. Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 22, Jesus says that this time period with the rule and the reign of Antichrist will be the worst experience that all of history has ever seen. There is nothing more horrible than what is going to be taking place during these moments in the end times. Jesus says, it's going to be so bad, you better hope you're not pregnant uh, because you're going to have to be running away for your life and your pregnancy is going to slow you down. You better hope that it's not winter. Uh, You're going to be kicked out of your home. You're going to be in exile in the world. And so you better hope that it's warmer weather. It's going to be so strong, Jesus says, the persecution of the Antichrist so strong that if it were possible, the elect would be deceived. Praise the Lord, it's impossible to deceive the elect, but he says it's that strong. This is going to be such a bad period of time. And then verse 25 says that uh, this Antichrist is going to establish himself in such a way where he's going to try and change alterations in times and in law. There's two different ways that that can be taken, uh, what it might mean to change times and seasons and laws. It may mean, number one, that the Antichrist is going to try and eliminate all set times for religious holidays and all laws regarding religious celebrations. So in other words, he may try to obliterate everything religious that's connected to the worship of God. That could totally be. Or it may specifically mean that in some general sense, he's going to to try and overturn the basic laws with which God has established the universe. This actually happened, interestingly enough, during the French Revolution. During the French Revolution, there was an attempt to turn the seven-day week into a 10-day week to change the basic laws of the way that God has governed the world. So it wouldn't be surprising if that's what the Antichrist is doing. Maybe he's doing both. The bottom line, what we do know, is that he's going to completely abolish all forms of religious freedom. He's going to bring an economic pressure to bear in order to force people to reject all other religions and worship him alone. He's going to be violently opposed to all believers. He will be opposed to them because he will be energized by the devil himself. And verse 25 tells us that this is all happening because they will be given into his hand for time. This is all happening by the ordaining allowance of God. This isn't happening apart from God's decree. This isn't happening apart from God's allowance. But notice it's for a limited time. They will be given into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. Now, the last time that we saw that word time in reference to a period of time was chapter 4, verse 16, when Nebuchadnezzar was told, you are going to have seven periods of time, seven times that will pass over you. And historically, we understand that to be seven years. Biblically, we would understand that to be seven years. So time, you could just in your Bible circle that and put equals one year. So when verse 25 says time, that's one year. Times would be two years, multiple years. So we're at three total and half a time. That would be half a year. So time, times, and half a time is three and a half years. We're going to see this more in detail 
when we get to Daniel 9, 27. And we see this in the book of Revelation, which we're going to turn to in just a second. But I want you to, to notice the Antichrist is going to rule in a ferocious, vicious, uh, powerful, persecutive way. But it's ordained by God. It's not apart from God's decree. And it has an end point. It's limited. God has already said it's limited. Mark chapter 13, verse 20 says this. Jesus says it's going to end because if it didn't end, all of the world would be destroyed. So God steps in and says, enough. It's done. Again, this has to be in the future. Uh, when the courts sit, verse 26, for judgment, the dominion's taken away from the Antichrist, and the reign and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom with all the saints will rule and reign here on earth. That isn't happening right now. So that has to be future. So we're not experiencing this right now. So it has to be future. Therefore, we're waiting for this future world leader, this future Antichrist. A time will come when this future ruler will show up. And this prophecy is telling us, He's going to make Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus look like little toddlers. He's going to make them look terrible compared to the rule and reign and devastation of the Antichrist. But Jesus is going to handle him very, very quickly, very, very easily, and take away his kingdom. Verse 26, his dominion will be taken away. Same phrase that's used about Belshazzar. Your kingdom's been taken away. Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom's been taken away. And given to the saints, Matthew 5, verse 5, the, the meek will receive the earth, will rule on earth, and the poor in spirit will receive the kingdom of heaven. Victory will follow after the Antichrist's rule and reign. Dominion, glory, and kingdom will be given to the Son of Man. The Son of Man is going to give that kingdom to his people, and the people of the king will enjoy that kingdom with the rule and the reign of their king, Jesus. I love the way that one commentator says that Jesus cannot stand being separated from his people. So I want a kingdom with my people and they will rule and reign with me. Where I am, they will be also. Now, I said point number two is the reality of God's word being a complete, perfect, unified whole. The reason why I say that and where I'd love for you to turn is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The reason why I say that is because it's very easy in prophecy to, again, get so stuck in the specific prophecy that we lose the overarching flow of the Bible, the storyline of the Bible. We've gotten a couple specific details about this Antichrist, this future little horn that's going to grow in power. And I think one of the reasons why prophecy should be so encouraging is you can take whatever is prophesied and go to other places in the Bible that are speaking about the same thing, and you're going to see that they line up perfectly. And that should give great encouragement. So let's do that together, just briefly. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. This man of lawlessness, that's the way Paul describes the Antichrist. He's the man of lawlessness, and the man of lawlessness exalts himself above every so-called God, or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the sanctuary of God, exhibiting himself as being God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, this is exactly what I was telling you. I told you that he was going to do this. And if you drop down, verse 9, or verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed, so we don't know who it is now, but he will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth. So we were told in Daniel 7 that when Jesus shows up, he's going to destroy the Antichrist, take away his kingdom, and throw him into 
uh, a fiery judgment. And so here we have that. He's going to be slain with the breath of the mouth of Jesus Christ, and he's going to bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, whose coming is in accordance with the working of Satan, that's the Antichrist, with all powers and signs and false wonders, and with the deception of unrighteousness for those who perish. So Paul says, hey, the man of lawlessness, that little horn, just like Daniel tells us that Jesus is going to show up and destroy him, take away his dominion, Paul says that's exactly what's going to happen. Turn to uh, Revelation. Revelation chapter 13. Again, we've gone through this book. We've preached this book verse by verse. So you can look it up on the website, on the YouTube channel. You can go through some of these passages that deal with the Antichrist to see some more specifics about him. But in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, John says, I I see this dragon standing on the sand of the seashore and a beast coming up out of the sea. And it has 10 horns. And seven heads, and on his horns are diadems, ten diadems, and on his heads are blasphemous names. So ten horns corresponds to Daniel 7's ten horns. Beast coming up out of the sea corresponds to Daniel 7, beast coming up out of the sea. Verse 2, the beast was like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion. Those are the three images that we saw in Daniel 7. The dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads looks like it's been fatally wounded. The whole earth is going to marvel at the beast and they worship him. Verse 6, he opens his mouth in blasphemies against God and against those who dwell in his tabernacle and in heaven. Verse 5, there was given to him a, a mouth to speak great boasts and blasphemies and authority was given. So again, that language of God allowing this to happen was given to him for 42 months. That's three and a half years, exactly the same time period we saw in Daniel chapter 7. All on the earth, verse 8, will worship him unless your name hasn't been written in the Lamb's book of life. We saw those two books in Daniel chapter 7. Here are one of those books again showing up. Verse 7, he makes war on the saints, and overcomes them. Exact same language that's used in Daniel chapter 7. Turn to chapter 17, Revelation chapter 17, verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom. So this is totally future for Daniel, but even for John in Revelation, writing around 90 AD, 95 AD, this is still yet to come. This is still future. So for John to hear that this is future cannot mean that Jesus has brought through his death and resurrection a kingdom to give to his people where we are ruling and reigning in it. Yes, Jesus brought a kingdom, but it hasn't been inaugurated yet. And he's still ruling and reigning, but from heaven, just as we saying, you will reign forever. And he's not reigning yet on earth, but he will reign forever. And so John says, this is yet to come. This is future for John. So you can see the the similarities here. You can see the corresponding one-for-one elements. Verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive this authority as king with the beast for an hour, for a limited period of time. They have one purpose. They give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And those who are with him are called, are the called, the elect and the faithful. Those who are with him are those that will overcome with him. In chapter 19, end of chapter 19, we see the Antichrist being 
thrown into the lake of fire, the judgment that's brought. We see chapter 20, verses 4 through 5, thrones that are uh, brought onto the earth that are set up on the earth. Just like Daniel said in Daniel 7, I saw thrones and there are people that are ruling and reigning with Christ. We see that in Revelation 20. Here's the bottom line. When it comes to prophecy, number one, the complexities of that prophecy shouldn't disorient you so much that you don't pull back and see the clarity with which that prophecy is easily understood. You can totally see the easy summation of the the prophecy. Here's the summary of everything that God's trying to communicate. Then number two, take that prophecy and look at other prophecies and see how clearly they line up, sometimes giving you more specific elements. Revelation does that with Daniel. Revelation is just a little bit clearer picture of what Daniel's going to be referring to. So be encouraged when you look at prophecy. Don't let it trip you up. Be encouraged by the reality that, oh my word, this is exactly like these prophecies over here, written hundreds and hundreds of years later. Why? Because exactly what William Tyndale said. Scripture is analogous with Scripture. There's no disagreement, no contradiction. So don't let prophecy trip you up. Let it bring you to a place of worship and glory that you see a prophecy that seems really strange, really weird, And then you go to another book of the Bible and you see the same exact kind of prophecy that's one for one identical that's showing you the exact same human history, the same flow of the storyline of the world. Finally, number three, a third aspect of encouragement. Go back to Daniel chapter seven. A third aspect of encouragement in Daniel chapter seven. Prophecy of future events impacts us in the present prophecy of future events. This is the third aspect of encouragement of prophecy, about prophecy, from prophecy. Prophecy about future things impacts us in the present. This is verse 28, end of Daniel chapter 7. And remember, all of this is future for Daniel. He's not going to experience any of this. He's going to experience the one transition from Babylon to Persia, and that's it. At the point... At this point, verse 28, the matter of this revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me. So verse 15, he was alarmed by the prophecy. He asks for explanation. The angel gives him a summation. He says, great, can I ask some more questions? The angel gives him some more details. And now he's even more alarmed. Now he's even more terrified. You would think that at the end of the angel's interpretation, Daniel would have said, awesome, thanks, I get it, I understand, and now I'm good to go. He's even more afraid. He's alarmed, not because of the ending. He's alarmed because of what's going to take place in the middle and how awful it will get for believers. It says, my thoughts were greatly alarming me. The splendor of my face changed. That's the exact same phrase of Isabel Belshazzar when he saw the writing on the wall. My face grew pale. Daniel's terrified. He says, but I did keep the matter in my heart. I kept it in my heart. I kept meditating on it, mulling it over. I didn't just reject it. I didn't throw it away. I didn't say, that's it. I'm done. That's terrifying. I don't want to think about that. Daniel doesn't get all the answers. And even in the rest of the book, we're going to see there are some answers that Daniel does get that he's not allowed to share. And here, it seems like he wasn't given an explicit command from an angel. He's going to get that later on. But here, he's not given an explicit command. Don't tell anybody about this. But it's almost as if he can't. It's almost as if he needs to figure out how does this work itself out in my life before I tell anybody else. Maybe he literally can't because maybe all of his friends had died at this point and he's alone. But we know he's perplexed. Here's what Daniel would be saying. I know a great and wonderful and eternal kingdom is on the way. 
But now I've also learned that there's a long and hard road of suffering ahead of us before it arrives. Battles will be lost. The war will ultimately be won, but only when the Son of Man comes. And so this prophecy changes Daniel's emotional state in the present. Daniel's afraid, which just another great reminder, just because you know the end doesn't diminish the anguish leading up to it. We know who wins. You hear that a lot in churches, right? We're on the winning side. We're on the winning team. We know who wins. Hooray. No need to worry. No need to panic. And yes, you don't need to panic, but there still will be pain. There will be suffering and it will be intense. And it is absolutely appropriate to look at that suffering and that intensity of suffering and persecution and be distraught about it, alarmed by it. Daniel's meditating on this as he leaves, knowing that this must affect the way he lives his life today. We've said this before, but if your study of and love for the end times prophecies doesn't change the way that you live life today, something is wrong about the way that you're studying those prophecies. These prophecies are designed to change the way that we love our neighbors, designed to change the way that we live with our spouse, designed to change the way that we parent our kids. These prophecies are practical in their application. Bible prophecy is not given to make a calendar, but to mold our character. Knowing the specifics about these prophecies doesn't make us smarter. It makes us savor the sovereignty of God more. Just think about Daniel. How interesting for Daniel. The prophecy of the final kingdom on earth matters so much to him and to other Jewish people around him in the 500s BC. They never even saw that third kingdom, right? Babylon, Persia, and then Greece. They never even saw that. They all died before that kingdom happened. And yet that prophecy about that future kingdom impacted them in the present, just like revelation for you and for me. We have Daniel 7 in the rear view. We have those four kingdoms, the the Rome 1.0 kingdom. We have those kingdoms. But we have been given a prophecy much like Daniel about future events that we might not even live through. We might not even get through that. We might die before any of those things begin. But just because we're not in those events doesn't mean that those events don't have huge practical implication for our lives today. So how should they affect us? How should prophecy of future events impact us in the present? You could preach a whole sermon on this. You you could dialogue about this. And I would encourage you to think this through with somebody at lunch today. How do future prophecies impact the present? But let me give you just three examples, three ideas. Number one, how should these affect us? How should these prophecies affect us? Number one, we should adjust our expectations about the present based off of these prophecies. These prophecies should help us adjust our expectations about the present. Evil will get worse. It exists and it's going to get worse. We shouldn't be surprised by it. Opposition against God and his people will grow. Suffering should be our expectation. It should change and adjust the way that we feel about what is happening and what is yet to come in the days ahead. Jesus told us that, John 16. In this world, you will have tribulation. It's a promise. You will have hardship and suffering. But, point number two, these prophecies should make us confident about the future because it is secure and sure. These prophecies should impact us today by making us confident about what's yet to come. Just as Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. He also said, but take heart, take comfort, take peace. Enjoy the reality that I have overcome the world. You're going to struggle, but don't worry, I've overcome the world. Daniel's writing to remind us about this future, that God works in the future just like he worked in the past. 
that just when it seems like evil can't get any worse and everything's just going to be wiped out, God's going to step in and make it right. There's a day coming. Be reminded by these verses. There's a day coming when God will say enough. God will say enough. Evil will stop. It's very interesting. We said earlier um, in a few sermons past, this is a bookend to Daniel chapter 2. We already saw this vision in Daniel chapter 2 with the statue. We already saw it with all the medals. We already saw this vision. We already knew what this was. Why is it being repeated? And we said one of the reasons why is the first one is kind of man's view of the kingdoms of this world. And the second one is God's view of the kingdom of this world. But secondly, remember back in Genesis 41, God gives Pharaoh two dreams. And they're two dreams, different dreams, about the exact same experience. The years of famine, the years of plenty, the years of famine. Joseph interprets them. Why two? Why do we need two dreams? Listen to what God says in Genesis 41, verse 32. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, this is what Joseph is saying under the inspiration of God, it means, why twice? Why repeat it? It means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. I love that. So why two? Why do we get another vision? God repeated the vision twice to demonstrate that it will happen. It's certainty. It's secure. The security and comfort of the people of God rests in God over the people ruling and reigning as king. God is sovereign. And one day he will convene his court and make all things new. Number three, third point that we could say, third application, third way that we can live out these prophecies. We, we see that we should adjust our expectations today for what's going to happen in the present. And then we should be secure and rest in the assurance of what's yet to come. But then we should, number three, allow those two realities to shape how we live today. Allow those two realities of what our expectation today is and of what the future looks like, bring those together and live in light of that tension. Honestly, I think that's the point of the book of Daniel. Think about Daniel, okay? Think about Daniel 7. God's people will be trampled by the beast, but in the end, God will vindicate them, save them, and establish them. That's the point. Now think about Daniel's life. God's people were taken away in exile. The beastly king Nebuchadnezzar attempted to kill them. God saved them. God vindicated. God established them in points of authority. So on a much smaller scale, God did with Daniel what he's going to do on a cosmological plane. God did with Daniel in his life. God did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their lives what he's going to do with all of human history, with believers in all of human history. Daniel is a model then for what it looks like to take the word, to read the word, to trust the word, and let your actions flow from the word. And in doing so, Daniel becomes a model of how we live as faithful believers in exile, filled with hope in a world that's completely gone mad. This is where we take the already and the not yet, and we live in the tension of the two. Until Jesus comes back, the rulers of this present order will do their utmost to wear out the saints of the Most High. But these saints, despised, reproached, persecuted, cast out, looked upon as the least likely of all humans ever to realize their hopes. These are the ones who will one day take the kingdom and possess it for all of eternity. That's the book of Daniel. That's the hope of Daniel.
Before this final conflict of suffering, even now across the world, various little horn types mash and mingle Jesus's people. We're going to see that even in Daniel chapter 8 with Antiochus Epiphanes, a antichrist type figure. So my question is, what keeps believers enduring? How do they endure? What keeps them from caving in? The only answer I can see is because God made us his own and we are his, he has promised to keep us to the end. He will never give up on us. And he will not allow us to be ultimately destroyed. One writer says it this way, we know that the son of man who is at the same time the head and the shepherd of the sheep, he, the shepherd, sees the lion coming, the bear coming, the leopard coming, and the fourth beast coming. And he does not flee. Brothers and sisters, your shepherd, your good shepherd is standing there in front of you. And as these beastly kingdoms are waging war against us, He says, only so far and no more. He ordains it all. He allows what he allows for our good and for his glory. And he is ultimately and finally at the cross and the empty tomb, proven not only his love for us, but his preserving, keeping, securing love for us. Yes, he's forgiven our sin. Amen and amen. But he's also promised through his blood to keep our souls for all of eternity. And nothing can snatch us out of the hand of God. Not even the Antichrist. So how do we overcome? Revelation 12, 11, They overcame him, the Antichrist, in the end times because of the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their life even when faced with death. You will only live that out and say, I don't love my life even in the face of death. You will only live that out if your life has been hidden in someone else's life. If Galatians 2.20 is true of you, I have been crucified with Christ. I don't even live anymore. My life is gone. Take my life. I don't even have a life anymore. My life is hidden in Christ. His life is my life. Therefore, the life that I live, I live by faith and I live to show forth the glory of God. And if you kill me, I just get more life because I get more Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let's show the world that reality. And when it comes to prophecy, don't be scared. Don't be scared rest secure in these realities and be encouraged. We can understand them and then let them point you to how we live differently today in light of what God has revealed to us. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is so clear. It is so beautiful. It is so cohesive. It's one unified whole and it does change the way that we live our lives. And even this morning as we prepare our hearts to celebrate communion. We are celebrating the reality that you have promised victory because of your death and resurrection. We are hidden in you. We've been crucified with you and therefore we no longer live. It's not our good works that are seen that are filthy rags before the father. It is Christ's good works that are seen that are our only hope and our only peace. It is his victory over the grave that gives us a fearlessness in the face of death. Knowing that for those who have already died in Christ, there is no more sting of death. The Father, encourage us now as we sing, as we respond in song, and as we prepare to partake in communion together with joy and assurance, knowing that if you have given your only son,
You did not spare him, but you graciously gave him up for us all. You've done the hardest thing. Therefore, preserving us and keeping us, though that seems a daunting task from our vantage point, that's an easy thing for you to do because of what you've already done. So may we rest, even as we sing, may we rest in your assurance. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.